So I'm actually going to do what I've been promising to do for I don't know how many weeks it is now. Um, before I start, let me just tell you that one of the awesome, really amazingly awesome blessings of what I get to do is, for me, most all of this stuff, um, you know, I don't have sermons that I've preached ten times, right, topics that I've touched ten times. I, I know things from being a Christian and from being taught and from reading my Bible, but it's way different to have a, a sense to know and, and to actually teach and declare it to people to be true, especially things that in the Bible aren't necessarily black and white, crystal clear. And um, I felt in my spirit, I guess, in my heart, that I knew the answer. But I, until like sometime Thursday afternoon of this past week, I didn't feel like I could um, necessarily defend it. You know, you know what I mean? It's like you know something and somebody says, okay, well, you know, how do you know it? And, I, and I, I could not confidently defend it. And Thursday afternoon, the Lord showed me a scripture, and it just, all of a sudden, as I was pondering the scripture, and I was thinking about everything in its context, and I'm like, wow, I, I'm very confident now that I could stand up in front of anybody and preach this message and feel like it's right. It's absolutely right. Now, there's people that are going to disagree with me because this isn't a topic that, in the church today, there's total agreement on. And it's easy. I don't know if any of you ever heard people um, teach on the rapture, right? When, when the rapture of the church happens, there's, there's kind of three rapture camps, uh, timing-wise. One says that before this thing called the tribulation, the rapture is going to happen. And another camp says that while this tribulation is going on, the rapture is going to happen. And the third camp says that everybody's going to go through this tribulation and then the rapture is going to come of the church. And if I listen to, you know, the first guy, I'm like, wow, that makes sense. That, that's got to be it until I hear the second guy. And I'm like, whoa, you know, your argument makes a lot of sense to me too. And then I hear the third guy and actually his argument's not quite as compelling to me, but he can make a great argument. So there's, there's things in Scripture that we really have to dig into to learn. If, if you walk away today, um, you're probably going to be in one of three camps, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to teach today that I believe that the tithe, and I'll explain all this to you, that the tithe is the appropriate place to start with regard to giving in the New Testament church. There's people that are going to walk away today and say, Amen, Pastor Pat. I've been doing it my whole life. Preach it, brother. There's others that are going to say, wow, you know, I've never really heard anybody tell me what the Bible says, and that makes sense. You know, I'm going to do it. There's going to be another group that believes that that's not the appropriate um, standard for biblical giving, that, that the New Testament, although it doesn't specifically teach, like Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody goes to the Father but through me. Hard to argue that one, right? It doesn't say, okay, here's what to do with your money, church. You have to infer, based upon the whole witness of the scripture, what it is that the Holy Spirit is trying to lead us to do. And there are people that their conviction is that we're to be generous. When there's a need, we're supposed to meet that need. And there isn't any specific amount or percent or, or way that we're supposed to do that. And I think if the tithe is the right answer... That person that has sincerely sought the Lord's heart and um, is convicted in their heart that the tithe isn't, but they're giving to a standard that you can see in the, you know, they're being like Jesus from that perspective. 
If they stand before God and they got that one wrong, I don't think that's going to be a two-second conversation. It's going to be, well done, awesome. You know, you were generous. You understood my heart. Good job. If it turns out that it's not the tithe, it's the other. I think the person who faithfully had that conviction in their heart and walked out the conviction, right? The, the um, Gosh, I think it's in Romans and it's in 1 Corinthians where Paul talks about your brother that doesn't eat meat, right? In the New Testament, it's clear you can eat what you want. All foods are in the game. You can eat pork chops. You can have bacon. In the old law covenant, you don't eat the pig. Here, eat the pig, no problem. But if there's a person who thinks that it's a sin to eat uh, ham or pig, and then they eat it, they have sinned because their faith is that it's sin to do it. So they didn't do it out of faith. They did it outside of faith. It's a sin. If your faith is that it's the tithe, and Jesus, when we go to meet him, says, you know, nice try there, Pat, but you missed that one. But, you know, your heart was generous. You represented me. I think no problem. But the third camp, this is the one that you have to be careful, and that's the person that's going to say, hey, you know, you're the pastor. You didn't tell me I had to do it. I'm not doing it. And, and your heart is stingy. Your heart is not generous like Jesus teaches your heart to be. And, and you don't take and make the effort to seek out the Lord's heart in his scripture. I don't want to be that guy standing before the Lord. If, if, if you get it right on this side, and you got there because you sincerely believed it and you sought it out, I think you're great. If you got there the same way and ended up over here, no problem. But if you're the person that said, listen, you know what? It's my money. I don't believe that stuff. And I'm not interested in looking it up. I don't think that's going to be a fun conversation to have with the Lord when it's your turn. Are you going to go to heaven or hell based upon it? Probably not. You know, go to hell. Maybe you get to still go to heaven. But the point is, you have to seek the Lord's heart for what it is that he would have us do in our lives. Okay? Whew, that was actually at the end. So when you think, oh my gosh, it's all, you know, I've already done part of it. So I want to do a quick review of the last few weeks because I really believe that every week, honestly, every week I, I thought this was the message I was going to preach. And, and, and just a side note, I thought this was going to be 10 minutes and then the rest of what the New Testament and, and the Proverbs teach about money in general was going to be the meat of the thing. But it's, it's, it's as, this is what I started to tell you I love so much is that all this for me, from a teaching perspective, is, a, is the first time through, right? A little over three years, I've never spoken on money or tithing or any of that kind of stuff because I never had conviction in my heart. And, and now I do. It's time. And um, you think you know the answer, and I'm just, I'm just wanting the Lord to show me so that I feel confident that I can defend what I'm going to tell you. And at one point, I was praying, and I said, Lord, can't you just tell me the answer? You know the answer. You could just say, Pat, it's the tithe. Or, Pat, it's not the tithe. And I got this impression. I mean, it was so powerful over me. Almost, I mean, I didn't hear God's audible voice, but it was almost like he was talking to me in a way that I pray that he'll talk to me or that I'll learn to listen. He said, if I gave you the answer, you'd stop looking. And um, so I keep looking. And in the process of trying to answer a specific question, all this scripture gets opened up to me that's not necessarily 
the yes or no to this question I'm trying to get answered, but I learn more about God. I learn more about his word. I learn more about his people and how he works. And I'm like, man, it's so awesome to have to seek out a matter so that God enriches you in so many other ways as you're doing it. All right, so let's review real quickly. Um, The first thing we talked about was law and grace. The law, I I almost was going to say that the law was never meant as a mechanism for people to be saved, but I'm not so sure I can say that. And and you'll hear it when I read from uh, Romans chapter 7, or actually when Margie reads from Romans chapter 7 in just a minute. But the law primarily is a measuring stick. It's a straight edge that we would would hold ourselves against a straight edge to see how we were doing. We think we're okay. We think we're a good guy. We think that we're righteous. And it's easy to be deceived because we always want to measure ourselves against somebody else. But when you take and you, and you line yourself up against this perfect straight edge of the law, you find out that your edge is all messed up and that you try and try and try to get your edge to be straight so it, so it lines up just right with the law, and eventually you find out that you just can't. And what that leads you to is the, the knowledge of us needing a Savior. So the law was primarily meant for us to recognize our sinful nature and our sinful self so that we would... Quit trying to save ourselves and reach out to a Savior, in this case, Jesus Christ, to come and to redeem us. Um, Grace, right? We're saved by grace, the grace of God through faith. Grace is the mechanism that God provides for us to be saved. If he chose not to send Jesus, we would be all destined for hell. There would be no opportunity. So grace provides the opportunity through Jesus Christ and our faith to be saved and have eternal relationship with God. The important point for the context of this conversation between grace and law is that when grace came, law didn't just disappear. There are certain things of the law that the New Testament affirms. There are certain things of the law that the New Testament abolishes. And honestly, at least for the revelation that I have, there are certain things of the law that I can't tell whether they're still supposed to be here or not. Right, but Paul tells us that the law is good, right? So, so if I'm not sure, I'm falling on the side of it's still law, and and in honoring and obedience to the Lord, I'm gonna try to walk out truth. I'm gonna read you something, and I, I, you gotta listen closely. Maybe y'all know this, but it's it's important that you get this. We must be diligent, keeping clear that our salvation is by faith and not by works. You cannot earn your salvation. That any works of the law or otherwise that we add to Jesus as the source of our right standing with God nullifies grace and invokes law. Understand? You cannot earn your salvation. Jesus is the only way. The minute that you start to get legalistic could be about the tithe, could be about anything that's of the law, and you you attach that to the requirement of Jesus, you've now nullified Jesus completely as your source of salvation, and you are now under the law that you have to keep it all in order to be righteous before God. You get it? Paul used circumcision in Galatians chapter 5 as, as the, to me, the most excellent example. These false teachers were coming and telling the church in Galatia that they had to be Jews before they could become Christians. And, he, and they taught them that they had to be circumcised, and then they could be saved in Jesus. And Paul said, if you take circumcision as 
a portion on top of, in addition to Jesus for your salvation, you have fallen from grace and you've been severed from Christ. Okay? So whatever I teach you today, whatever you hear today, if there's a spirit that tells you, okay, I can't go to heaven unless I do that, that is not the Holy Spirit speaking to you. All that said, relationship between God and his people has expectations. We were created for good works in Jesus Christ before the foundation of the world. You can't apply grace and say, God's grace, my faith, I'm saved, live however I want, do whatever I want. God has no expectation other than that I believe in Jesus. That is absolutely not true. God has much expectation for his people, okay? But it's not what gets you saved. Okay, Jesus didn't call his followers Christians, right? We call ourselves Christians. The world calls us Christians. Christians it, Christian is an undefinable term if you use scripture as a way to understand what it means because it's just not used in any context that has a definition. What Jesus called his followers was disciples, which is very, very tightly defined in the scriptures. To be a disciple is to make a serious decision. Jesus said that he came not to bring peace, but to bring a sword. Now, he is the Prince of Peace, and he does bring peace, and his peace he left with us. But what he's saying in that scripture is that he, he brought a sword that would divide husband from wife and, wife and father from son and mother from daughter for the purpose of making a decision that if you're going to follow Jesus, you make a choice. And if your husband or your wife or your mom or your dad says you can't or you know whatever, then you have to choose because you can't have both. So to be a disciple is a serious decision, a high calling with a great expectation from Jesus, literally that you would lose your life just like he did on behalf of him, that you might gain your life in him eternally. Okay? Okay. Then we talked about that everything believes in God. And after we went through that whole process of showing the scriptures, I asked you the question, do you believe that everything belongs to God? That the wallet you have in your pocket, the shirt that's on your back, the car that you drive, the house that you live in, is it yours or is it God's? The earth, the people, does it all belong to Everybody said yes. Because it's important that you believe that or, or what comes later is going to be really hard for you to receive. Right? The earth, the money, even the people, the scripture says, belong to God. And then the last point that we talked about was that from the perspective of being God's people, that we are in recognition that he owns everything, that we are managers and not owners, that we're stewards, that he's called us to care for the things that he's placed on this earth and in our possession. We possess it, but it's his. And, and we looked at the parable of the talents as a way to see how serious he is about stewardship, right? The, the guy that got the five talents to invest and, and he, he earned five more talents, he was said... Um, well done, faithful servant. Enter into your master's joy. And the guy, they got two and earned two more. Got, got the same. It didn't matter how much he had. It's what he did with what he had. And he got the same reward from his master. But the one that took the single talent that he was given and he buried in the ground because he was afraid. Right? He just didn't want to make a mistake. Oh, I don't want to do something wrong. When the master came back. And remember, the, the parable doesn't say, you know, my friend, my helper, my bud, my sidekick. It's master and slave. It's to make us understand the relationship. It's a loving father relationship, but Jesus is Lord. That one who took the one talent and returned nothing to the Lord, but what he had been given was called wicked and lazy. 
God's really serious about what we do in stewarding and managing and caring his stuff. Caring sounds like one word. Caring for, <laughs> caring for his stuff. I almost wasn't going to share this scripture with you. It's Malachi chapter three, verse seven through twelve. It's the it's the primary why you would tithe scripture in the Bible to, to kind of get people to understand God's heart. It is a scripture that's referenced as as a function of the law, but it's it's good to see if for no other reason how God really it's like it's like a sidekick to the parable of the talents how God is about us stewarding his stuff in this case it was Israel stewarding all that he'd given them go ahead from the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them return to me and I will return to you says the Lord of hosts but you say how shall we return will a man rob God yet you are robbing me but you say how have we robbed you in tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, so that there may be food in my house. And test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the window of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows, then I will rebuke the, de- <clears throat> the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of the ground, nor will your vine in the field be cast its grapes, says the Lord of hosts. All the nations will call you blessed, for you shall be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. So God, through the prophet, is speaking to his people. And what he's saying to them is, you know, they're probably whining that, you know, we follow you, God, and, you know, our grapes fall to the ground and rot on our vines, and we don't, we don't have any blessing. And he says, well, you're robbing me. And they say, well, how are we robbing you? How does a man rob from God? And he says, in tithes and offerings. Uh, he he rebukes them because when they bring him a, a calf it's or a, a lamb it's it's a sickly you know spindly lamb versus the best lamb that they have, and he's rebuking him and he's saying because you're stealing from me because that tithe that first fruit that very beginning of what you get belongs to the Lord it belo- if, I mean if I'm God speaking it belongs to me, and you're stealing from me, but God is so gracious. This is I think the only place in the Bible where he's actually asks to be tested. So in his graciousness, he says, but if you'll stop stealing from me and you'll honor me with the first of what you have, with this thing that's called the tithe and the offering, then see if I don't open the windows of heaven and pour out for you blessing after blessing after blessing. They had no blessing because they were stealing from God. That's the history of Israel. Honor God, walk exactly in the covenant the way he promised them. Dishonor God, serve other gods, all kinds of misery happens. And we're no different than Israel. When, when you see someone struggling, they come to church. They get prayer. They, 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 they start to walk tight with the Lord. Now, this isn't everybody, you know. You guys are all here. Bless your hearts. And then things get better because God blesses them because they walk in his ways and, and they, they serve him as Lord. And then when the problem is solved... Wander away and, and go live how you want. And then, oh, you know, the wheels come off again. And it's like, it's the cycle of walking with the Lord, not walking. Walking, not walking. Blessing, curse. Blessing, curse. Obedience equal blessing. Disobedience equals curse. So this week, and we're going to probably have at least two more weeks worth of conversation about money. Um, this week, we're going to tackle this, this concept of the tithe, Okay. 
So tithe, the word tithe literally means a tenth or 10%. As a verb, to tithe would mean to give the 10%. Now, in the, in the Mosaic, the covenant that God made with the people of Israel through Moses the tithe was really somewhere between like 23 and 30%. And, I, and I'm not um, a law scholar person. I can't tell you what all the different feasts and festivals and things that they had to give their money for. But when, when you were a, a Jew in Israel in the Old Testament, your tithe, what you, what you paid to God, was closer to 30% of your gross income than 10. What we're talking about is the very first 10 here, okay? All right. Um, the question that comes up often is gross or net. So if you're telling me that I, I owe God or I need to pay God 10%, you know, do I give Uncle Sam his and then give God his off of that, or does God get the first? Well, God gets the first. So the fact that the government took theirs before you had a chance to give God his doesn't change the expectation of the tithe. God gets the first fruits of what it is that we receive, not the what's left over fruits of what we receive it's the first fruits, okay? Just so you know. And by the way, this I don't have this in my notes, but as I was thinking about this for months, sometimes we think of, like when we have a guest speaker come in, right? And I say, hey, listen, you know, you're not deciding how we honor the guest speaker based upon, well, that was a $5 sermon or that was a $50 sermon, right? We're honoring that person and their surrendered life to the Lord. This isn't a show. It's not like you went to the IMAX theater and it cost you 20 bucks to get in or, or a tithe to get in or whatever. Um, and you didn't come the next week, so you didn't see the show, so it didn't cost you anything. The tithe belongs to God. So if, if I don't come to church for three weeks for some reason, that money didn't stop belonging to God. And before that, that stinking spirit that says all the church wants is your money and that money grubber needs a new Cadillac, let me just tell you that we don't take any, seriously. Teresa and I take zero. We're just the busiest volunteers in this church. We, we don't, someday we probably will, to be quite honest with you, but not this day and not any day till this day. I'm so glad I can say that before my first money sermon. And from the perspective of the church, we're not like, oh my gosh, you know, we're going to have to turn the lights on. It's hot in here because we can't afford air conditioning. We've been able to meet every need that's come to us that was an appropriate need. We've said no to some people because it wasn't appropriate to say yes. We have to be also good stewards of God's money that you place into our care. But our issue is not that we need your money. Seriously, it's not. I mean, we're good to go. We've always had whatever we needed. So I'm telling you that this because I want you to have the blessing that God talks about, not, not because I want to make sure that, you know, whatever. Okay. I hate that I have to feel like I need to say that too, but someday I won't worry about it so much. Here's why I believe the tithe is for now for us. In the Bible, I see the tithe before the law, right? If you have some history, right, there's Genesis and God creates everything and he makes Adam and he makes Eve and they get this wonderful thing that they live in called the garden. garden. Um, And everything in the garden is available to them except the tree in the center. The tree is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God says, from that tree, you you, you can't take the fruit from that tree. And if you do, you will surely die. There would be no death had we not sinned, our our father Adam and Eve, father and mother Adam and Eve in the garden. That tree belonged to God. The rest of it, the people could have whatever they want. Then you fast forward and you see like Noah and then Abram and then Isaac and Jacob and 
Um, God tells Abram uh, and then through Isaac and then Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, that his descendants, that his seed would be greater than the sand on the beach, that he was going to be a great, great, great nation. A little later on, Moses, who's of Abraham's seed, comes along, and God creates this covenant with these people in law, right? He gives them this thing called the law. So there's prior to the law, there's many covenants in the Bible. There's the, what's called the Mosaic Covenant, which is the law that we're most familiar with. You know, the Ten Commandments will be part of the Mosaic Covenant. And then there's this new covenant, this new kind of agreement that God makes with people, and that's in the blood of Jesus Christ, and it's this covenant of grace and mercy that we live in today if we choose Jesus as Lord and Savior. Okay? Some background. You see tithing before the law. You certainly see tithing as a function of the law, and you see Jesus affirm the tithe in this new covenant. So that's where I'm going to take you. First one is um, Abram, whose name is later changed to Abraham. So when you hear Abram, it's the same guy, Abraham, who's the father of Ishmael and Isaac and the, you know, the patriarch of this whole faith. Um, go ahead, Margie. Then after his return from defeat of Cheddar Lamer, or whatever that word is, <laughs> and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was the priest of God Most High. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram, Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. He gave him a tenth of all. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours for fear you would say I have made Abram rich. So the, the context of these scriptures in Genesis is Abram has this nephew whose name is Lot. Lot lives in, in this town called Sodom or Gomorrah. I think they were together, but you know Sodom and Gomorrah, a bad place, right? Lots of bad stuff goes on in Sodom and Gomorrah. And there's these four like tribal kings that have been ruling over these other tribal kings for some period of time. And these other five, they go up against the four to try to get their freedom. And this big battle happens. Well, in the process of this battle, um, the four original like ruling kings capture Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abram's nephew Lot and all of his possessions and his people are carried off by these other kings into captivity. Abram finds that out. He goes and gets his 318 guys that have actually been, you know, trained how to fight a little bit. And he goes up and he gets Lot back and all of this booty, you know, all this stuff and these people from defeating these kings that had taken Lot captive. Now, this person, Melchizedek, Melchizedek gets introduced here and, and he is like a type of Jesus. Some people think he is actually is Jesus. He's a person who has no birth record. He has no death record. He's, he just is an eternal priest of the Lord. Now, remember, there is no Levitical priesthood at this point. There, there is no uh, you know, tribes of uh, Jacob or Israel. This is before all of that. This guy who's the king of Salem, they think maybe that was what we would know as Jerusalem, shows up. And he prays this blessing over Abram. And, and basically what he tells Abram in this blessing is that 
your victory, that you recovered all this stuff, is because the, God, the Lord gave you this victory. And as soon as Abram understands that what he has came from God, his immediate response is to pay God a tenth, to, 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 to honor God with a tenth through this guy Melchizedek who is the priest of the Lord. Now, I don't understand his priesthood so much because... There's just no real definition of it. Later you see, especially like in the book of Hebrews, if you read Hebrews, you'll see Melchizedek referenced a lot that Jesus, as high priest, was of the same order of Melchizedek, that that the, the Levitical priests, their priesthood would come and it would go because they were mere men and they would be born, they would be into their priesthood, their time would come up, they would die, they were just mere guys. But Jesus and Melchizedek both had a priesthood that continues forever. So... My first thought was that maybe the tithe always existed, but nobody knew what to do with it because there was no priest yet. I don't know. But as soon as they understood that what they had came from God, they gave to the priest a tenth. The next place where we see it, and this is the aha moment. I didn't find this scripture until Thursday afternoon, but this is where the aha came for me, where I really felt that that I could defend this whole thing. This is now... Abram has a son, Isaac. Isaac has two sons, one of which is Jacob. This is the line that follows through the people of him. This is Jacob having this experience with God and then how he comes about to honor God with a tenth. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So Jacob rose early in the morning and took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on its top. He called the name of the place Bethel. However, previously the name of the city had been Luz. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me on this journey that I take and will give me food to eat and garments to wear and I return to my father's house in safety, then the Lord will be my God. This stone which I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. The aha for me was this concept of recognizing that what you have came from God. So here's Jacob. He's off on this journey, and he puts his head down on this rock, and he has this dream. It's, it's Jacob's dream. You hear Jacob's ladder, you know, the angels ascending and descending. That's kind of Jesus kind of giving a little bit of an explanation of what's going on in Jacob's dream. And the Lord says to Jacob in his dream that I will be with you, and I will keep you. You know what it means to be kept, right, like a kept person? They don't have any worries about their needs. They're all going to be met because they're being kept by somebody else. Your little baby child is kept by you. They they don't have to go out and work and get some food. They don't have to pay rent. They don't have to wonder how they're going to get clothes to wear, if they're going to be out in the rain or under a roof. That's your responsibility because when you decided to have a child, you were responsible then to keep that child. That's what God is telling to Jacob here. I'll be with you and I will keep you. And then Jacob says, wow, you're going to be with me, and you're going to keep me. Well, And and God says forever. Jacob only speaks in the context of this particular journey, but he says, if you will, then I'll give you a tenth, because he recognizes that 
being kept, everything that he's going to have came from God, he's going to return a tithe to the Lord. Not under the law. There's, there's no mention of he's required to do it. He recognizes that what he's going to have is from God, and, and out of that recognition, he provides back a tenth to the Lord. There's a thousand scriptures with regard to what you tithe and what you don't and under the law. I, honestly, I've not studied out. To, I, I don't have any interest to know how I would have to be right under the law because I don't live under the law. But I want to reference at least one scripture from that particular thing, and I think it's an important one. I'll, I'll just go this one. It's short. Um, in Leviticus chapter 27 and 30, it reads, Thus all the tithe of the land, of the seed of the land, or of the fruit of the tree is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. So in, in this particular scripture is where the the Lord through the Bible tells us that that first piece of whatever you get from him, right, which is everything, the first piece belongs to him. And it's holy, set apart. We're to be holy to the Lord, set apart from the world, right? He's saying that, that when you harvest your crop, the first, the first 10% is his. It's not like it's yours to give to him. It's literally his. The Malachi scripture said you're robbing God because you're holding back that which is his. It's important for us to understand that he sees it that way. We saw it before the law. We're seeing it all over the place in the law. Now we'll look at it after the law. Matthew twenty-three, twenty-three. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. This conversation Jesus is having with these scribes and these Pharisees, these religious people, they, remember we talked last week or the week before, these, these ones that he described as being whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. You're all shiny and clean on the outside, but what matters is on the inside. He's telling them that you're so careful in the tithe that if you've got a plant and it's got ten leaves on it, that that tenth leaf comes off and it goes to the, to the tithe, to the Lord, but you're neglecting these other things um, of the law. Man, I got myself lost for just a minute. Yeah, uh, justice and mercy and faithfulness. He's like, you should have continued to do these things, this tithing things, but not in the absence of, that's the whitewashed outside, the absence of the whitewashed inside, which is mercy and faithfulness and justice, these, these weightier things of the law. Now, it's not Jesus necessarily explicitly saying, and, and thou shalt tithe throughout the end of the church era, but he's affirming the tithe. And, and sometimes people will push back and they'll say, well, you know, he hasn't died yet, and he hasn't been resurrected yet, so it's really still the Old Testament. But Jesus says, I think it's in Luke, that the law and the prophets were until John. And since John, the kingdom. So John is John the Baptist. So the law and the prophets were the order of the day for the kingdom until John. And now it's this new thing. So he's actually post-John in the conversation argue whether or not he's just trying to make a point with the Pharisees or he's affirming the tithe, I think he's affirming the tithe as he's making an argument with the Pharisees. 
Go ahead, Margie. Do not worry then saying, what will, what will we eat? Or what will we drink? Or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Go ahead and read Matthew 28. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. These two scriptures, because they parallel the Genesis scriptures that we read earlier. First, Jesus says, seek first his kingdom, his, the Father's kingdom and the Father's righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So they're asking, the, he's telling them, he's like, why do you worry about what you're going to wear and what you're going to eat? Right? He's trying to tell them, you are a kept person. Don't worry about these things. Seek his kingdom. Seek his righteousness. All these things that a kept person should expect are going to be provided for you. And then in the Great Commission, he says, and lo, I will be with you always. Abram recognizes this increase that he gets as a result of God giving him the victory in this battle is from the Lord. He pays a tenth. He's a kept guy. Jacob goes out. God says, lo, I will be with you always, and I will keep you. The Great Commission says, I will be with you always. Matthew 6 33 says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Once you understand that everything is God's, and everything that you have is because God gracefully gave it to you, then the, the response appropriate looks to me like you give some back to God. The tithe is not an issue of law, but an issue of relationship with God. It was a law requirement in the Mosaic Covenant and a practice of both Abram and Jacob in their awareness of God's provision prior to the law. The tithe was also confirmed by Jesus in the New Testament and continues to be the appropriate response to the recognition that God owns everything and that God is our provider. Maybe we need to rethink sometimes our perspective on law because it's so easy to get law tangled up with grace but paul in romans chapter 7 um, verses 9 through 13 tells us about the law in the context of the new testament i was once alive apart from the law but when the commandment came sin became alive and i died and this commandment which was to result in life proved to result in death for me for sin taking an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me so then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good. So that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. Maybe we should think like that the law is not still over us to condemn us but under us as a guide, right? As, as it's under us to, to, to guide us in our path, you know, do not steal, do not commit adultery, honor your parents, 
the law is a, is a is a is a light to our path, not necessarily this thing that condemns us to death anymore. And the straight edge we see now, the issue isn't the law; the issue is sin, right? When you see the straight edge of the law and you in the crooked edge of yourself, what you're seeing every place it breaks from that straight edge is sin, not a fault with the law. And Paul affirms that in Romans chapter seven that the issue is not the law; the law is good, and the law is holy. It was enacted that we might recognize sin in ourselves and understand that we need a Savior because we can't seem to get our edge straight. God doesn't need our money. Everything we have, he gave to us. All of the wealth in the world is his. The tithe is kind of two things. It's, it's, a, it's a memorial. It's, a, it's like, if you remember in the scriptures with Jacob, he built a, he called it a pillar all through the Old Testament, you'll see the Lord commanding Israel to, to, to build an altar, to build a pillar, to pile up rocks. And what's the, the reason for the rocks? Is as you walk by the rocks, you remember this thing that I told you here. He built a pillar. He said, well, this place is the house of God. It's Bethel. It's where God resides. And he remembers that God provides for him everything. It's, it's, a, it's a way, if you get $1,000 a month and you give the Lord $100, every time you give the Lord that $100, it's a memorial to remembering that Everything is his, and everything you have came from him. It's, um, if you were a farmer in the Old Testament, you were commanded by the law not to harvest the edges of your field. Have you ever heard the word gleaning? Like, ah, I gleaned that little bit of information. The word gleaning comes from this practice of Israel that was commanded in the law that you wouldn't harvest the edges in the corners of your fields. And the reason that they were commanded not to do that was that they would... Um, provide for the alien and for the widow and for the orphan so that they wouldn't have to be um, embarrassed in their need. They could come just to the edge of the field and they could glean some wheat or they could glean some oats or barley or corn or whatever it is that you're growing and they could take it and they could have some way to survive. That they, that they would, um, well, that's gleaning. The other thing it would do is as, as the father is harvesting his field and his son is working with him and his son says, Father, you're just a really rotten harvester, man. Look at all the stuff that we didn't harvest. You know, we could have collected all that. And the father can then tell his son, no, that's for us to remember that it all belongs to the Lord. And he asks us to leave this peace in his name for the people that can't provide for themselves. We're no different than Israel. We're prone to forget God's ownership and his provision James one seventeen says, every good thing given and every perfect gift is, this is why I was having Margie read today, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. With all that in mind, I would describe the tithe this way. It's an act of worship. Anything you do in surrender, anything you do in humility to God is an act of worship. It's a statement of faith. When, when you tithe to the Lord, you're saying that you have faith in his provision and his ability to keep you as a kept person as you seek his kingdom and his righteousness. And it's an act of recognition that everything that you have, he's actually provided for you. Just some, some quick points. We're really kind of running long. How, how do you give? What's what's the 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 way to give? I, I'm you know well, I, with a check or with cash is both fine. That's not the point. 
Second Corinthians 9, 7 reads, Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, if you really want to see about the, the, the generous heart of the church, read Second uh, Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. And what you find in there is you, the Apostle Paul speaking to the church at Corinth about this hardship that's going on with the Christians in Jerusalem. And he uses uh, the Macedonian church, who he says, these guys are so poor, but they gave so much out of their hearts to help the brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. And, man, I don't want to come and have you be embarrassed or me be embarrassed. You know, you, you need to get ready this gift that you promised that we can take back to the church in Jerusalem. But he's saying, don't do it under compulsion, you know, you're not being demanded. You don't have to do this. Do it with a cheerful heart. And if you can't do it with a cheerful heart, then seek the Lord until you can find a cheerful heart and leave your money in your pocket. You are not under compulsion. You are not under law to give. You're, I don't even think personally that he's talking about the tithe. I think he's talking about something beyond the tithe, which, tithe, which is called an offering in this context. I think the tithe would have not even been considered for this purpose, but the offering would have been considered for this purpose. And what he's saying is that you, you need to be generous, but you need to do it from a heart that is generous, that's glad to do it, and seek the Lord so that he can help you if you struggle in that area. Another point I want to make, because... Lots of times in the church you find that there's a wife and not a husband. You, you seldomly find a husband in church without a wife, but oftentimes you find uh, a wife in church without a husband. And the biblical order that God has established is that, that God is at the top. He's the head of Jesus. Jesus is the head of the man, and the man is the head of the woman. Now, that doesn't mean that man and woman aren't equal uh, that's a whole other thing. We'll, we'll talk about it sometime. We've talked about it in the past, but there's an order that happens, right? So if you're a woman and you're in the church and your husband's not a believer and you feel this conviction to tithe, you're going to be hard-pressed to get your husband to feel good about taking 10% of your gross income and throwing it in the bucket here at church on the street. I'm telling you, don't make that expectation. Don't let giving be something that's divisive in your marriage. God is much more concerned that your marriage be strong and whole, that your witness before your husband would be of love and of submitting to his headship in your family than he is about that he got 4% instead of 10% when you put in the basket. So women that are in here, or if you're a man and your wife doesn't come, I'm telling you, if your spouse is it's going to cause division, then do what you and your spouse can agree on, right? You could tell your spouse, listen, you know, it's, it's my clubhouse. There's a light bill. They got to put gas in the lawnmower. The pastor works cheap, but there's other stuff that, that uh, needs to get paid for. Anybody would understand that. Whatever you agree on together, that's what you put in the basket. Okay? Okay. Let me just say one more time, and then, then we'll be done. You are not under any legal responsibility to tithe. You're not really under any legal responsibility to give anything. We're not under law. We're under grace. Your salvation is by God's grace, your faith in Jesus, and him being Lord of your lives. That's where your salvation comes from. The tithe tithe is the beginning, not the end, of what a mature Christian, somebody who understands their relationship with God is. 
and your tithe is the tithe is a recognition that we're managers and not owners, that God's provided everything for us. So like I said at the beginning, there's, there's kind of three responses that you'll find. You're right on, brother. No problem. I'm, I'm in the game with you. You're a great guy. You're generous, but you don't quite understand the scriptures, but you're still in that generous kind of giving. You understand the heart of the Lord in the New Testament towards giving, or you're in that third place that says, yes, he gave me an out. He told me I didn't have to. And you don't have to, honestly. If you can't give cheerfully and without compulsion, you should keep your money. But you really should be searching out the Lord's will for every kind of decision that you have to make in the Scriptures. Because you will not stand before the Lord in ignorance, especially coming out of this culture, right, where you could, most of us own five Bibles. You can know God's will. And if you're truly, truly calling Him Lord, then you would seek Him to understand it, right? Okay. And I feel like a stumble bum this morning. But I hope you got the heart of what, what I think the Lord is saying. He's a gracious and he's an awesome God. And he loves us with a passion none of us could even understand. He doesn't make us. We have free will. Even Israel had free will. But they, they had to keep learning over and over again this concept of blessing and curse associated with obedience and disobedience. And that all the blessing that God has for us comes through obedience. Curse comes through disobedience. Now, if we were in the world, I think this is kind of screwy, but I, honestly, this isn't one I couldn't argue with you doctrinally. But if we were in the world, I think blessing can come in disobedience because God loves the world. He has no opportunity to bless those that aren't going to eternally be his other than right now. But if he were to bless disobedience in his church, we'd have chaos. There would be no order. We wouldn't know what was right and what was wrong because God would continue to feed what was wrong. It's different in the world, I think, obviously, than it is in the church from God's perspective of blessing and curse. There's curse in the world for disobedience to God. It's called death, eternal death. That's the big big one, right? Okay, got to land this thing someplace. All right, let's just pray. Thank you, God, that you're generous. Thank you, God, that we are kept people. Thank you that you love us with a perfect love. Lord, I pray that we will learn to love you with that same agape, that same perfect love that you have for us. I pray your blessing over this church. I pray that this church would be as the Bereans, Lord, that we would search the scriptures to be sure that we understand your heart, that just because a guy with a microphone says so doesn't necessarily make it true that we would know because we sought it, because we learned it, because Holy Spirit taught us, because we were hungry to know. I pray your blessing for this week. Lord, I pray that we would be an awesome witness for you everywhere we go, that we would grow in love, and that we would let love flow every minute of every day. Pray in Jesus' mighty name, amen. Thank you for sitting through that with me. Bless your hearts.